Okay, so welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. My name is Daniel Whitehead. I am the CEO of Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries. And during COVID-19, I'm also your host for this podcast. Um, the whole vision for this podcast in this season is that we connect with uh, friends of sanctuaries, just people around the world who are doing great work in the whole intersection of mental health and faith and people with a story to tell. And uh, we just really want to drill into their story and hear how they're doing in this time. Today, we're joined by a really good friend of mine, uh, Ellie Johnson. Ellie is based in Liverpool, England. Ellie is an author. Uh, she's uh, written one excellent book called How Not to Be Good, which I've read, and it is a really, really good book. Um, she's got another book brewing, which maybe she'll tell us about. Um, yeah, Ellie, though she lives in Liverpool, is not from Liverpool, as you'll hear from her accent, if you're accustomed to British accents, as I am. Uh, she is not a Liverpudlian, but um, but just uh, Ellie has an amazing story and does amazing work, and we're delighted to have her with us. Hi, Ellie. Hi. So, Ellie, COVID nineteen. Yes. How's it's, that going? Um, well, it's going. I I feel like there's not really a, a one answer to that, is there? Because every day. Although the day involves all of the same things as the day before and the day after, well, emotionally, from one day to the next, for, whether it's me, my husband, my children, who knows what we're going to get, really. But yeah, we're doing okay. Overall, I would say we're doing pretty good. And how many children? Uh, tell everyone uh, your sort of home situation at the moment, Ellie. Uh, so I am married, been married for 20 years this summer. And I have, we have three kids, uh, two girls who are 15 and 13 and a son who's 10. Okay. And we all are in our house at the moment, obviously. Uh, my husband doesn't normally work from home, whereas I do. And he has taken over my study and I am in the spare room because that's what happens when <laughs> he needs to work. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Great well, sacrifice was... on my part. <laughs> was, that a, was that a happy agreement? Like, um, it was a necessary agreement. I don't okay. think happy is the word I would use. It was okay. fine. It was, it was, it makes most sense because I'm uh writing and can organize my own time and have occasional but not very often need for Zoom calls and all the rest of it. Um, and I'm also the one doing the lion's share of the homeschooling. Um, and he is on different Zoom calls with people he works with and with uh clients and people he works with all day long from nine in the morning till six in the evening so him being in a room with the door shut away from the noise of the rest of us works better although okay. I did feel quite sad giving up my space yeah well yeah tell me about that you, you well yeah. it's just uh, to be honest when uh, I think it was probably a week or 10 days before we went into actual lockdown when it started looking like schools were going to close and I realized that before I realized that also that was going to mean my husband was going to be working from home. And I'm not mm. sure which I found more distressing, if I'm perfectly honest. Um, it's it's one thing to be at home on my own with kids, which is what happens most of the holidays, apart from the time that um, my husband has off work. It's another thing altogether for us all to be together and all to be trying to do the different things that we want to do all in one space all the time. Um, I think there was a bit of grieving about what this season was going to look like for me. I'm, um, as you said, I'm in the process of trying to write my second book and I was just really getting my teeth into it. And mm. I had sort of a plan that I was going to get this first draft written by 
well, the end of this month was my plan. Um, that's not happening. Um, and so there has been a, a process of gradually accepting the limits of what are possible and actually being okay with that. And and I think that's for all of us in our house, for me, my husband and my kids, my eldest daughter um, was meant to be sitting her GCSEs this summer. Mm. And when we found out those exams were cancelled, that was I, I mean, I cannot remember the last time. It sounds ridiculous, really, but I cannot remember the last time um, I felt so utterly devastated mm. for her, really, um, because she's a really hard worker and she was in her last... Uh, she'll be moving schools in September, so it was her last term at this school that she's been at since she was five. Um, and they're a great year group and they've been working really hard and it's that whole thing that we're aiming towards this thing that you're being told for years and years is really important it's really important it's really important and then all of a sudden it's just like oh it doesn't matter and it's gone and wow. that kind of just like and I when we heard she we were listening to um the news and we heard Boris Johnson announce that all exams GCSEs A-levels ex all exams were being cancelled and she ran downstairs into the kitchen just went oh, is it true is it true is it true and mm. And I was like, I'm listening, I'm listening, I don't know. And then we both just burst into tears. And really, I think we both cried on and off for 48 hours. And oh. and a lot of the time I felt a bit stupid because I was like, oh, it's just GCSEs. And in the long skirt, on the big scheme of things, you know that doesn't really matter. No one ever asks you what you got for your GCSEs after two years later. That is true. But it was more the... Um, the kind of rites of passage for mm. her, for me... Um, it was the um, expectation and anticipation that was just suddenly like the rug was pulled. And it was also just understanding that it was the first thing that made us really realise our life is really going to change now. Yeah. And we all have got to get on board with this as quickly as we can because, because that's what is necessary. Yeah. And I think the, the crying... I felt silly. I felt really silly because I just couldn't stop. At, like people would see me in the street and I would just burst into tears or, you know, mm. I'd be in the supermarket trying to get a few, I'd just burst into tears. And I'd be like, I'm so sorry. I don't even know why I'm crying really. I just mm. have to cry. But now I look back and I think, actually, I'm quite glad that I cried so much because yeah. it enabled her to cry. And for me, it meant that I wasn't trying to, make everything okay through my own sort of willpower yeah. and actually I was allowing accepting the fact that it wasn't okay and it was sad and um I don't know where I picked this up could have been Brené Brown could have been Susan David could have been any of the brilliant thinkers but the whole thing of about emotion needs motion like we need to there needs yeah. to be movement we need to allow it to move through us and and yeah, those those first two days were really hard, but it was kind of a good process. Mm. Yes, I got distracted there. I got off the point. No, that's great. I think we'll come back to crying because I think that's a good yeah. thing to talk about. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting reflecting on in our home when the news broke here that schools are closing. Annie, my wife, who is a she works as a children's pastor in a church, uh, but was a teacher by vocation. Mm -hmm. um, she came through and said they've announced schools are closing and there's sort of tears welling up in her eyes. And as much as Annie loves education and Evie going to school and those things, it, I knew it was it was way deeper than that. That The tears were something really bad is happening. Something really yes. serious yeah. is happening and the mm -hmm. world has changed. 
Mm. Um, and that's what it was. And it was interesting reflecting on my own response to that. I mean, I will process my emotions probably about 10 years time. Um, <laughs> Or slowly, you know, over a longer period. <laughs> Slowlier than Annie. In that moment, I suddenly go up and go, well, this is happening. This is this yeah. is what we're going to do. Let's this make is, a plan. This is, yeah. This is, yeah. <laughs> so there was this, this, this disconnect in the moment, which I'm not proud of. I'm really not. Like, I know this stuff. I, I read books. I listened to Brenner Brown. I'm <laughs> friends with Hilary McBride. I know this stuff. Um, but, um, but nevertheless, there is a... Yeah, there is this challenge. Uh, talking around crying and tears, I, yeah. uh, I think that's um, there's something there to press into because it it will mm -hmm. seem really obvious to those of us that are working in a kind of mental health environment or around it or speaking to this that emotional connection, emotional engagement, emotional intelligence, all those things are, are, are vital to having well-being, um, yes. to being in touch. And it, it's always struck me, you know, as a person of faith, I, I know you're a person of faith, that mm -hmm. this challenge in the scriptures you know when when jesus encounters a group of people who are grieving he goes to the tomb of lazarus and when he sees yeah. them grieving what does he do he weeps which yeah. to me is strange because if i were jesus and clearly i think i would have done a better job um <laughs> when i when i make statements opening statements like that um if i were jesus if i were jesus <laughs> uh if, if i were jesus i would have i would have said guys don't cry like there's no need I'm going to fix like, this. It's all like, good, people. Boom, Don't worry done. about it. Yeah, you know, it would have it would yeah. have been fine. And yet, his response, you know, God in human flesh, the, the one who creates and holds and sustains all things mm. in human flesh, his first response is empathy, is to cry, yes. to be stirred yeah. by the. And so, there's something and, in and that, I isn't think, there? Yeah, there is. And and I think, um, and maybe this is problem with my definition of empathy, but I think that I I want to think that he was also grieving. He wasn't just like, oh, I'm crying, yeah. like, because you're crying. He mm. was crying because he was also sad. Mm. And I don't know, that's that's not theologically based, but I, I, I like to think that, yeah, that Jesus was so totally human that he couldn't not weep yeah. when something really bad was happening. Um, but, yeah, I remember my um, therapist said to me, um, I was uh, just – for anybody who doesn't know me, um, I was diagnosed with postnatal depression and generalized anxiety disorder 10 years ago now. And it came as a massive shock and I didn't know. Sorry, Dan, I know you know all this, but no, it, it came as a massive shock. And, and I didn't know that I had been ill for quite a long time and I'd been trying to make myself be okay. And a lot of that looked like trying to shut down how I felt, um, apologizing for tears, feeling weak for crying, feeling like my anxiety was my own fault. And if only I was stronger, then I wouldn't feel like that. And being from a, a faith background, if only I was holier, prayed more, had more faith, whatever, I wouldn't feel like that. You know, I wouldn't feel the need for these, and this is in inverted commas if you can't see me, negative emotions, because there are no negative or positive emotions. There's just emotions. Mm. But I had to learn that. And my therapist said to me, um, I was crying again in the, with her when this is quite near the beginning and, and I started to say sorry and she said oh really no all tears are therapeutic mm. and and I say that to my kids now I say no 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 crying is good crying is good all tears are therapeutic like there's a there's a release that's needed or there's it's it's expressing how we're feeling and and I don't want to just um not everybody's a crier like mm. I, I think that you know we're different, aren't we? And and I, um, 
yeah, I know that some people crying comes really easily. I quite cry quite easily these days, but I don't know if everybody does. But somehow this experience um, is provoking emotional responses. And if we don't allow those and acknowledge those emotional responses, then we can't get to the other side of that and then start to work towards working through them, trying to um, understand or, you know, get past the, if, if we deny the initial emotional response, uh, there's always a healthy way to express that. It doesn't have to be, you know, throwing things across a room. But if we deny the initial emotional response, whether that's anger or tears or whatever it is, uh, then we we can't move past that feeling you know it's like it's it's stuck it's uh yeah we're just stuffing it down trying to repress it with other things you know whether that's tv or booze or cake or you know (laughs) whatever anything yeah Yeah, anything i've seen it in my um in my son um he has cried a bit but it's mainly acting out which looks more like um anger and it looks like it looks like tantrums which Mm. aren't you know, he's 10. That's not that normal anymore. Uh, you know, no. occasional. <laughs> we all have a tantrum occasionally. But his inability to talk about or process the things that he was missing meant that he would just get very frustrated frustrated, and then it would yeah. sort of erupt. And and it took me a couple of times. I got this wrong a couple of times when I would like lay down the law or, you know, say, okay, you need to go to your room. You don't speak to me like that or whatever. And then I realized, oh, no, 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 that's not what this is. This is grief manifesting. This is his inability to process what is happening manifesting. And actually all he needs is me to hug him. Mm. And like, this isn't the time for discipline, you know, for him right now. This isn't, that's not what's necessary. What's necessary is him to just know that he's safe and he's loved I mean, that's mainly what's necessary all the time, really, isn't it? But yeah. but even more so now, this isn't the time to be saying, that's not how we do things in this house. Yes, of course, we still need boundaries and he definitely needs routine. But actually, I've realised that it's more important for me to acknowledge how he's feeling, to say, I know it's really hard. I know you're really missing your friends. I know you're finding it really hard that you're at home and you're having to learn you know, even just having to learn remotely, even though I'm mm. right there with him, he's used to being in a classroom, to goofing about with his friends, being able to tell his friends that he thinks it's boring and, you know, answering the questions and getting something right and getting praised for it. And that can still happen, but in a very limited way when it's just me and him sat at the kitchen table. And yeah. he, so to be able to say to him, like, this is really hard and you're doing really well and I really love you and it's going to be okay. And I, it kind of took me a while to realise that that's what his meltdowns needed much more Mm. than you know me being strict or any kind of punishment I mean gosh yeah it's not the time for that and that's really interesting isn't it when we think about often we we, you know and I know that you know you believe this but when you we talk about our children and like uh yeah I have a son who's four years old and sometimes he'll respond certain ways that four-year-olds do and my wife will remind me occasionally when I'm not quite seeing it will say well he's only able to process one emotion at a time like he can't you know he can't multitask his emotions and then she'll say that and I think I think it's the same with me you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) we we analyze our children and go oh yes this is this is what they're experiencing Mm -hmm. and this is how they react and like no that's how we react as adults as well it's like we get angry and suddenly we think if we if we do the work we think well why am I angry like what's yeah what's really going on here and and anger is obviously a valid emotion but it's interesting to me in your journey as a person of faith you kind of came to this realization that 
you know, you, you receive this diagnosis mm -hmm. and uh, the process of coming to own that and then looking back at your story as a person of faith, I wonder, were there tensions there in terms of what you were implicitly believing? You, you alluded to it earlier, but maybe talk a bit more. <laughs> Were there tensions? Yeah. Yes. Well, there you go. I had Set to unpick the whole thing. Um, I think, yes, very much so. Um, the way I had understood how to be a person of faith, how to be a Christian, um, was so much weighted on my behaviour and my ability to to do it right. And I knew about grace, and I knew about the gospel, and I knew, and I tick all them boxes. Yeah, I know all that. But then I, but then what would always be left with me was the, and what are you going to do in response? Like, because you have been given such a great prize, you know, salvation and, uh, you know, grace for all your, the things that you've done wrong and all the ways in which you screw up. Um, and, and now what, Ellie? And I have come to realize that, well, that isn't how I think about faith anymore at all. And that rewiring, dismantling the old framework and then trying to figure out what goes in its place has taken 10 years and, I, and I'm not there, um, just still working on it. But fundamentally, the idea that there was any way in which I needed to contribute to my acceptance, I needed to perform, to, to do anything, anything at all to make myself worthy of acceptance uh, was um, something that it's taken a long time to um, to come to grips with it in any way because really my uh, if you like my teenage years were uh, all the don'ts all the don'ts you know don't drink don't smoke don't have sex don't be have friends who are unsuitable don't dress immodestly don't blah 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 and all my twenties were all the do's do do work hard do run small groups do um be a godly parent do have an excellent marriage uh, uh do volunteer uh do be a good friend do pray do read your bible do blah 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 um you know added on to all the don'ts that we've already had and and it felt like it became less and less possible to um to trust myself to be to be able to do any of those things and um, I mean, this is I, I am uh, condensing, you know, a decade's worth of, of thinking and learning about this. And therefore, this is going to be um, only fragments of the truth. But it came really from an idea that I had um, I'd put original sin before original goodness. So in the in the Garden of Eden story, um, when Adam and Eve, or even Adam, as lots of people like to say at this point, um, you know, you know, eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, having been tempted by the serpent, you know, original sin, as I was always taught, original sin entered the world. And there was this idea that we were originally sinful. But actually, mm. I was forgetting the chapter that came before that talked about how we were created good and how God mm. looks and he says it's very good. And 
And I kind of that had it that had not even factored in my thinking. I'd only focused on the fact that I was in some way not good enough and had to work very hard to make myself good enough, which in a way is kind of why the book's called How Not to Be Good, because I'd spent so many years trying to be good, trying to repair the things that I wasn't good enough at, trying to have a consistent prayer life, trying to, oh, I don't know, volunteer at church in the kids work I mean I was really bad and I really had a bad attitude about that because I was terrible at it and I hated it uh, or or to try and be patient with my kids or to be gracious with my husband or you know whatever it might be and every time I failed or, or I fell short of what I thought was expected of me which when I examined it what I thought was expected of me was perfection which was pretty unattainable um, it just piled on the pressure to try harder and I think that that was probably one of the main strands um, that contributed to my anxiety and depression because I started becoming these two separate people. The person who I really was, who felt like a failure and like she was getting it wrong all the time and was trying to constantly repress all my actual needs and desires. And this other person who I showed, who I was like, oh, here's, here's shiny Ellie who does the right thing and, you know, looks good and ticks all the boxes. And that dislocation between the me who I really was and the me who I thought I should be um, created a, 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 well, I think that was one of the main contributing causes to to my depression. Mm. And so, so yeah, the faith element of it, it wasn't the only thing. There was lots of other things, three small children, a busy life, all the rest of it. Um, but I would say that the faith strand was the thing that I found it very hard to silence because it was so um woven into my upbringing and and my belief system and my value system Mm. so yeah so so unpicking that and realizing that original goodness comes first and that I in no way need to contribute towards my acceptance because I am accepted because I am because I exist because I was created because I because I'm loved um that's that's quite a big mind shift and and it catches me out all the time still, you know, when I realize that I'm performing or I'm trying to make somebody like me or I'm, you know, whatever it is I'm doing. So, yeah, sorry. Big answer. It was a big question. I don't apologize yeah. for giving a big answer. It's a, it's a good answer. <laughs> it's a good answer. And I wonder um, how often, so in terms of it, your faith journey, um, this crisis, like in some senses, I've only known you since, I'm going to say Ellie 2.0, but you know, but, uh, <laughs> knowing you're a work it's, in it's progress. Actually, it's actually Ellie Original, who you've met. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Getting back to original Ellie. <laughs> yeah. Good, good Ellie. Um, yeah. uh, but getting back to that, how has is, how is your experience of faith subsequently, and let's say the church, your experience of the church with this mental health thing you're carrying has that been a, a natural fit for others what what kind of response have you had where have you found uh, have you found a, a safe space in the church in to to be this ellie um um that's a very difficult question dan and when i don't know that i can fully answer because hmm. i don't know if i fully have an answer um one thing i will say for sure is i have found lots of other people who are on a similar journey to me um, in in lots of faith communities. And that is, I'm definitely don't, I, it sometimes feels very lonely 
um, when you're unpicking things that felt like they were um, expectations laid down by a certain faith community. I'm not saying that they were, but when that's the kind of general assumption is that we work hard together for the gospel, if you like, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Hard work is not a bad thing, but the motivation behind it cannot is not always a necessarily massively healthy or maybe on my in my I can only talk to myself in my experience it wasn't for me it wasn't healthy mm. and I and I don't know whether churches and, and I just want to speak in broad terms if that's all right mm. but I don't know how much churches have really um or really understand the mental health implications of of some of the some of the teaching which is well-intentioned and 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 good you know and and often sound but I think that we maybe have an imbalance in the things that we're taught sometimes in certain churches um and that the works element although although we know the right answers we know that that it's not it's not by works that we are saved actually there's a lot of talk about works and maybe not that much talk about grace hmm. um and i would definitely say that i i have found people of faith who i am working this out with doesn't necessarily look like a formal church arrangement although i still go to church i wouldn't necessarily say that I'm getting the chance to explore all those things in a formal church arrangement at the moment because, and and I know lots of people hate this word, but to a certain extent, a church is an institution and an, an institution or an organization has to in part exist to maintain itself. Mm. And therefore there has to be work that goes into maintaining the organizational structure and the institution of the church. And that's not always compatible with the broken people that the church is looking to serve. And I count myself mm. in that category. Mm. Um, uh, we had one conversation a while back with some people, <laughs> being vague, about what a um, successful, again, using that word uh, in, in inverted commas advisedly, church Sunday morning would look like. And there were lots of reasonable answers about people being engaged with worship or uh, a really good theologically sound word being preached or people responding to that word well. And I didn't say anything. And then eventually I said, surely it just looks like the most broken and needy and desperate people feeling safe and like there's a place that they can come and no acceptance and everyone's like oh yeah 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 yeah." but actually I think those two things can be intention quite often because churches want to the appearance oh I don't know I, I don't I don't really want to say much more about that but but I think that it's difficult I think that it's complicated for a community to exist for the benefit of its weakest members which is kind of what the church is kind of meant to do. Mm. Mm. That's very interesting. I, I was chatting with uh, Ruth Rice, who you also know, mm -hmm. um, 
I think, did I introduce you to Ruth Rice? You did. Yeah. Um, and Ruth, uh, Ruth runs this organization, Renew Wellbeing, which was born out of her own uh, brokenness, uh, her own experience of burnout uh, as a minister, and really asking the question, what kind of community do I need to be well? And so yeah. she created this thing, which they call Renew Wellbeing, which is this space which has this rhythm of prayer which is optional people you know they pray three times yeah. a day it's very kind of monastic in that sense loosely yeah. monastic but follows that pattern and um and it's always done in a side room people can go into but the rest of the time this is just a space where people connect and find belonging and wellness yeah. and and somehow in the midst of that environment they create um surprisingly surprise surprise god is somehow in the midst and mm -hmm. there are people you know encountering community and love and grace and mercy and um uh, in in those spaces so it's a to me it's an amazing model that any church yeah. can pick up yeah. but that one of the dangers is that churches go oh well this is another thing so we'll just do yeah, this thing now, people go yeah. and do their thing and but we're doing the, the sunday morning thing um uh yeah and yet there, there is the churches that do that renew thing well it's more like a philosophy of of, yeah. of how they see yeah. the, the body of christ as this messy broken group of people that are trying to work it out together um, I think I think the community part is something that I haven't quite I haven't quite found my place in for mm. that element yet but I would say that I found that I encounter God more in my garden than mm. generally in uh, church services at the moment would would be the truth the absolute truth i i, I find uh you know or walking by the river or um you know being outdoors i feel connected to god in a way that buildings um don't always quite work for me at the moment and and i think it's part of part of my ugh, journey to, to use that word but but it's part of my process at the moment because i think there's a there's a certain um necessary element of, of healing I think that that has to come from me and also there's like a there's um well here's a thing so the whole idea of pattern matching pattern matching experiences with places or um things that trigger memories of that certain thing so for example um having been brought up in a church environment which in many ways was excellent like there was loads of excellent things about it but one of the things about it was actually I ended up not very well and I often felt that very much in the church and I felt my sense of sense of not quite being able to figure it out and make it work and therefore sometimes I can be in a church environment and I can sort of find myself going back there to being the other Ellie who's trying to do all these things and that's not necessarily very helpful for me um whereas in my whereas being outside and being in the garden and paying attention to creation or you know whatever it might be is something that is new to me and therefore there's no negative associations with those things and I feel like I can think clearer like mm. the clouds clear and I, I can make more sense of it and if you don't if you don't mind me just going off on a bit of a tangent here um the the situation that we're in at the moment with lockdown um really reminded me I didn't realize for two weeks, uh, the first two weeks, I was really struggling and I felt this anger growing in me about the situation, about being trapped at home, about the fact that my husband was in my office, you know, working all the hours and I was stuck downstairs doing the homeschooling, not getting to write the book that I wanted to be writing, not able to see my friends or or give myself 
you know, or necessarily using all the things that I have used in the past 10 years to make myself stay well, um, whether that's walking or seeing a friend or whatever it might be. And it took two weeks. And I suddenly realized, oh, I'm getting really angry. I'm getting really angry about the situation. This feels, it, this is totally unfair. Why am I the one doing this? So, you know, all, all that, all that poor me going on. And I had a big row with my husband because that's the healthy thing to do, right? And, um, and it was only the next day. And it was fine. We, got, we didn't, there was no solution, but we, you know, worked it through and we still liked each other at the end. So it's fine. Um, then the next day I suddenly realized, oh, I've been going, I've regressed 10, 12, 13 years back to the me that was stuck at home with the young kids uh, who was actually seriously depressed, who didn't know it, who was um, feeling trapped and isolated and like everybody else could do this better than her and she was making a mess of it and all the rest of it. And I had absolutely, in my mind, pattern matched to this previous experience of being stuck at home with children. Hmm. And then, and but as soon as I realized that, it was like uh, the, you know, the lights came on and I was like, oh, but I'm not that person anymore. And I don't have to experience this like that. And I can make this work in a way for me where I'm still able to do some of the things that I need to do, that I can give my kids my time, but I'm also not trapped and I'm not stuck in this. I can ask for what I want and what I need here in these, you know, constrained environments and situations that we're in. And it was such a um, it was such a revelation. And, and I've spoken to a, I wrote something on Instagram about it, and I spoke to a couple of people about it, and they were like, "That's exactly what I've done. That's exactly what I've done." I think people who have had experiences of postnatal depression, particularly, mm. who are back now at home, trying to homeschool, maybe trying to do another job at the same time, uh, all the rest of it. I think that there are very similar feelings of isolation and separation that can occur. And it takes, you have to sort of give yourself a moment to recognize that this isn't the same thing. And mm. maybe you're not the same person as you were. I know that's complete answer to a completely different question, but I just no, no. thought I'd throw that. Well, it's a great answer. And I, I think that that whole, um, you know, that instinct, instinctive, that inbuilt uh, trauma recognition thing that we have, to me, mm. I mean, as a, I know working in this environment of faith and mental health and talking to different people, some people get very nervous when you begin to talk about the science of this and going, well, actually, there's something inbuilt in us that if you are put into a situation that reminds you of a traumatic event, it will trigger a certain response, yeah. that, that kind of fight or flight thing. And yet for me as a person of faith, as a, you know, as someone who studied theology, to me, it just speaks of how fearfully and wonderfully made we are, how yeah. God has made us. It, he's thought of every little detail that actually – if we're in a dangerous situation or a situation yeah. that feels dangerous and we don't even know it, but subconsciously it feels dangerous, he's created us to respond in a way that's going to get us out of that situation. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's, it's for, it's for our own protection, isn't it? And I, I you know, I, you know, you, you wouldn't want, I don't, I don't want, I want my kids to step into the road and a car comes past and them have to step back really quickly. And then the next time I want them to think before they cross the road, you know, and, but I want them to yeah. have that, feeling of oh this is a dangerous situation I need to pay attention here you know and, and it's you're, you're right it, it's it's not um that pattern matching thing is is for my protection and it's to open my eyes to the situation and to you know it, it's for my own my own growth and protection like you say yeah totally yeah. and that thing I mean you can tell that you've done the work where your response to what is a, otherwise a very negative emotion like that feeling of anger and just carrying mm. anger mm. is to go what's it telling me and then in some yeah. ways you you can then say oh well thank you inbuilt response thank yes. you anger yeah. for you you have my back but 
I'm yeah. okay. I can. Yeah, I'm okay now. I've, I've got, got this, this. one. Yeah. I can put these things in place. And that, to me, speaks as someone who's who's done the work. And um, and I know that hasn't happened overnight, but um, no. <laughs> but I really admire you for that. Oh, thanks, Dan. I one other thing. Uh, my husband did a like a. He's not on any social media, and hilariously, he was asked to do an Instagram live, and he had to do it off our fifteen-year-old's account, which just you know really made my day that he was going on under my daughter's account on this Instagram live. But somebody asked him, um, you know, what, how are you coping, or you know, what what are you doing in this time? And and he said, kind of off the cuff, well, for the last ten years, we've been deliberately slowing our life down, so it's probably been a bit easier for us than it is for other people. And mm. like, boy, is that true? You know, mm. um, we we have we have slowed everything down, and and our lives still feel full, but compared to the ridiculous ideal that we used to have of what we should be able to fit into an hour a day a week, you know, we have we have really cold at the diary, yeah. you know, and, and initially that was just because we had to because there was no. There was no alternative. Like I, I was, I was really not very well, and that was that was what was necessary. And then we realised, oh, hang on a second, we can't go back because if we went back, we'd just end up ill again. So yeah. that was that was a non-starter. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's really interesting that you raise such a potential other thing to go down when um, it's nearly time to finish. But I think if it's possible to sort of summarize that point which i think is an ama amazing thing to recognize is that there are many people that would argue that our culture has been operating in a way that is not conducive to wellness um yeah ultimately we <laughs> see ourselves as uh, uh uh our value is attached to what we can produce um uh, the faster we go the more we're praised we're actually rewarding people for pursuing a lack of wellness and that whole thing of love um, has a speed, which I think John Swinton, who again, you know, is, mm -hmm. a, is, a, is a friend of Sanctuary's, yeah. but John has written about that, that love has a speed and that ultimately that love is kind of a slow process. You, you can't, you can't, you can't hurry love. No, you'll you just can't. have to wait. Who said that? <laughs> um, uh, but, but the point is, I think if, and that's one of these strange, weird, and this, this is a very Western perspective. I know for many mm. people what's happening right now is only darkness and, and difficult. Yeah. Um, if you cannot yeah, earn the money today to pay for your bread tomorrow, you and your family are going hungry. So I'm not trying to trivialize what's going on. What's happening is horrendous and we need this to end. You know, Lord, help us. We need this to end. But yeah. one of the strange gifts, reoccurring gifts that I know I have encountered and I'm hearing from other people is that they, people have time. Mm. And, and in that that place of time people are able to notice people who live with their families that they, they notice their children more they're saying oh i'm getting to see my children more than i did and there's something i feel kind of guilty about enjoying this a little bit because i know i shouldn't be but there is a strange gift in just being given time and i think i think this whole mental health conversation a lot of what i hear from people who are pursuing wellness and doing well is that they found a new rhythm a new way of a, of of engaging with time that they're not yes. dancing to a tune that someone else has told them they're now slowing down and and living the life that they can live and 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 pursuing wellness so yeah. um yeah there's more that yeah, can be said I, but yeah. yeah i mean yeah i i think 
it's absolutely true at the moment you know we were joking the other day about like why did we buy a diary for this year like what was the point like that we know everything that was in it has been cancelled and but actually the idea of having a diary and scheduling in rest um like actually scheduling it because we schedule everything else and and we schedule you know all the time that we have a lot of the time and and now i've learned that if i look at my diary and i'm out more than two evenings in a week well, that's not going to go well for me. And it's actually not going to go well for my family either. Um, and that's not because I'm a martyr to my kids and like cooking home-cooked food. Don't get me wrong. It's not going to go well for my kids because I'm not going to end up very well. Yeah. Maybe three nights at a push. But like that's that's just got to be one week and then the next week I'd have to take it easier. You know, whereas I used to think I could be out four nights a week, no, no stress every week. In fact, I had regular commitments three nights a week regardless. Hmm. And, and now, you know, I think even if it's something I really want to do. And I've realized, you know, simple things like, obviously when we're not in lockdown, uh, wanting to see friends and recognizing that the rhythm of our friendship is actually that we don't see each other every week or even every two weeks. Maybe we see each other once a month, maybe every yeah. six weeks. And actually acknowledging that and being like, that doesn't mean that I don't care about them. That doesn't mean that they're not really important to me. It doesn't mean that we won't probably text each other in between. But life is, you know, if you work and you've got kids or you know even if you don't it, life is full and mm. and actually recognizing that and then putting plans in place is is absolutely necessary to you know maintaining mental health and well-being and also just for fun like life yeah. is a lot more fun when you're not knackered all the time it really yeah. is yeah <laughs> it's so true and it's so funny you know it strikes me ellie it's so funny that we can sit here and we could pat ourselves on the back and go, oh, yeah, uh, calendarizing rest. There's a great <laughs> idea. There's a novel new idea that we've worked out after 44 minutes of talking. We've worked out that to calendarize rest is the thing. And yet they're right at the beginning of the Genesis you know, narrative. Yeah, right at the beginning. Right don't there. forget to rest. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I love my, my favorite. I'm going to plug. I'm going to make a little plug for it. My favorite book that I've read about Sabbath is called Sabbath. Um, by Wayne Muller. I don't know if you've read that book. Mm, um, no, and it's it's absolutely brilliant. And and I and that book has challenged me so many times about what it actually means to rest. Like mm. what is actual rest as opposed to like, you know, we'll think, you know, well, you know, I'm having a day off today, but actually your day off is full with chores. It's not actually a day off or, you know, whatever it might be. And and not resting when the work's finished, but resting because it's time for rest. Is, is another real challenge to our like Western capitalist mindset, really, isn't it? You know, we think, oh, well, I've just got to get all that done and then I'll be able to rest. Well, no, if you if you work till you get all that done, you'll probably just collapse. You won't rest. You'll just, you know, zone out. But yeah, it's um it's it's a concept that's been there since the very beginning. And yet mm. we are still trying to learn it. <laughs> wow. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for sharing uh from your experience and uh Pleasure. your Honesty and candor is is just so needed, and I'm just grateful that your work is getting out there. But quickly tell people um, how they can connect with you via various online platforms. Gosh, uh, I struggle to remember them all. Uh, basically, I'm Ellie Johnson, which is E L L I J O H N S O N. There's no E on the end of my name. I don't know why. That's how my parents spelt it. I don't know anybody else who spells it like that, but that's how it is. And it's elliejohnson.com. And then you can find links to everything from there. Um, I'm on Instagram, Ellie Johnson UK. And I've written a book called How Not to Be Good, which at the moment is only for sale through my website. 
that's it yeah i'm sure that'll change soon um <laughs> and uh so ellie thank you so much for joining us if you've uh, right been listening to this or watching this uh, and you think it's good share it with other people um go to sanctuarymentalhealth.org to find all our resources the sanctuary course an eight session course on faith and mental health the grief resource which will be launched by the time that this airs which is a four session course uh a blog various other things but look up sanctuarymentalhealth.org go to elliejohnson.com that's right .com. go there and um yeah thanks for joining us Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries exists to equip the church to be a sanctuary for all people at all stages of their mental wellness journeys. May this podcast encourage you to create safe space for your own story and the stories of others, as well as create change in communities that stigmatize those suffering with mental health challenges. The Sanctuary Course is a small group resource designed to help initiate and guide conversations about mental health and faith. It is a starting point, creating a base of shared knowledge from which churches can explore the next steps. Perhaps most importantly, through the simple act of talking openly about mental health, the course helps churches begin to create safe spaces for people to share their mental health stories and receive support in community. Each theme in the course is explored from a psychological, social, and theological perspective, and each session is accompanied by a compelling film focused on an individual's story, a person of faith who has journeyed through mental health challenges. Interested in exploring the Sanctuary Course for use in your community? Learn more at sanctuarycourse.com. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives 4.0 license. Don't change it or sell it, but please share it all you like.